0: Make every effort. There are countless examples of stories of wasted talent, wasted opportunities of people that you see that failed to make every effort, people that you know in your life, perhaps family members or or friends. And and when you see that happen, when you see people with all the opportunities who who choose not to make every effort, it, it can make you angry, at the very least sad, of squandered opportunities and purpose. When you think of your own life, Perhaps as you look back and you see squandered opportunities, likewise, perhaps it it fills you with, with sadness or anger. Our text today by Peter is written in such a way that he has a clarity of purpose that comes through the ink of the pages. When the congregation hears it read, it's as though it's his voice coming off Breathing onto their cheeks as they listen in their ears and they hear exactly this, that God does love them. And as those who know Christ, those who have turned from sin and place their faith and trust in Christ, they are to reflect Christ's likeness before the world and in their own lives. And this looks like, in a word, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. The God who is supremely Fruitful. Jesus, who is the, the good, vine, believers, as we abide in Christ, fruitfulness by the Spirit, He who indwells us upon coming to salvation. The God has made us and wired us for fruitfulness. He has made us to know Jesus and to make Him known in our lives. To be and make disciples for God's glory. And that looks like fruitfulness of living. It's to this we are called in the text today to make every effort Every effort, as you look at the first words of verse 5 of chapter 1 of Second Peter, he says, for this reason. For this reason brings us back into the previous verses we looked at last week. Now, we're not going to read those again, but in our big idea today, I've summarized them for us. For this is what these eight virtues are tied to, that we're to make every effort, every effort to grow in these things. Every effort to grow in these ways as believers who rested and trusted in Christ's sinless life, Jesus, the God-man, paid our penalty on the cross, defeated death and rose again. Make every effort to grow in these virtues, beloved. So look at our big idea today, right here in our bulletin, verse 5-11. through We've been found by God. We've been rescued from the worldly corruption of sinful desires. We've been, in this way, given participation in the divine nature. That's to actually grow in godliness. And we've been promised future glory. So then, what's all this mean for us? What we looked at last week? Let's give our lives to fruitfulness. Let's give our lives to fruitfulness. And before we even dive in here and begin unpacking this in two senses, it's very possible you've gathered this morning as one who has confessed faith in Christ, but as you look at your life you are one of those that does sit with shame and guilt. And you say, I've been far from Christ. I've been many things, but fruitful is not one of them. Fruitfulness to you this morning looks like not sitting in shame. Fruitfulness to you looks like confessing it to the Lord and sending your heart and mind on Christ above. Your hope of glory. That's fruitfulness for you today. And so let's begin by discussing in the first number of verses verses 5 through 8, the reality that we've been called to abide in the glorious and excellent vine of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been called to abide in the glorious and excellent vine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is feeding the flock of God. It's important to understand as we look at these, these are not, this is not some man-made religion. Man-made religions have this idea of them. You do these things and climb your way or earn your way to some sense of salvation some sense of forgiveness or love from God. These are not eight virtues so that God will love you. These are not eight virtues to earn your way to salvation or earn forgiveness. These are as those who have been forgiven in Christ. We have received recipients of the divine nature. We've been forgiven and washed clean. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We then are called to set our minds on the things above. These are eight areas of transformation. And these aren't the only virtue lists in the New Testament. There's three others. We won't read them, but I'll give you the reference if you're a note-taking person. and would like to look them up later. Three of them. Number one, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Number two, James 1, 3 through 4. And number three, the one we're probably most familiar with, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. So the question becomes, for 2 Peter, our text today, why eight virtues? And why does he present them as supplements, the one and the other? Is it some kind of chain that goes together? So if you don't have the first, or, you, or, you, or are they steps where you need to be able to have the first step mastered before you go on to the second step? No. If that was the case, we would never move beyond faith because we would never master faith, correct? We'd never make our way to enduring in Christlikeness, steadfastness, as he calls it. We'd never be steadfast because we can't master but these rather I would posit this morning these are eight areas eight virtues of transformation that as we look to Christ and set our minds on Christ and abide in Christ these eight areas that we're making every effort to grow in are transforming areas in our lives that we would begin to more and more resemble Jesus our king the groom the one who has washed us as white as snow That's what we see in our text this morning. So how do we grow in these eight areas? What does that look like in our life to grow in this way? Let's look first at faith. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Number one, faith in Christ. So as I preach through these eight, we're not just going to use the word. We're going to kind of tie it into the idea of abiding in Christ the vine, abiding in Jesus, the King, the promised one of God. What's it mean to abide in Christ? It means to have faith in Him. We've already seen from the first verse that Peter, the apostle, writing to these people, he writes to them as those who have a faith of equal standing to Him. So he's not on this executive CEO faith and they're on this other faith working their way up. They have a faith of equal standing because we've received salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't submit a resume. We didn't apply for it. We're recipients of the grace of God, been brought from death to life. To all who believe have salvation, to all who look to Christ find a perfect Savior. There is no Christian without having faith in Christ, and it's personal faith in Christ. We know faith is not genetic. You don't get it from your parent or grandparent. Now, by God's grace, there's a legacy of faith in which if you grew up in a Christian home, you... Uh, that that they were abiding in Christ, you were blessed to see what that looked like to model faith and faithfulness in Christ. Likewise, it's not contagious. We don't simply catch faith from someone else. That's a dangerous application today. But we have faith in Christ. Without faith in Christ, we cannot please God. Without faith in Christ, we have no newness of life. So faith in Christ, we rest in Christ. Colossians 3 says it this way. Listen to this, Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. This is an if then as a sense of you have been. So if you have been raised with Christ and every believer has been raised with Christ. So what's he tell them to do? Sit back and do nothing? Just wait? It'll wash over you like the tide? No, that's not what he says. The same idea we have here in 2 Peter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Seek and do what? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Faith in Christ. So what we're talking about is not some sense of legalism and earning your way some way. But our faith and how we grow in Christ is both active and reactive. It's reactive as we walk through 1 Peter together. Do you remember what he said about Trials. If necessary for a little while, every trial you endure in your life, believer, it is necessary to grow us in Christ's likeness. That God is pruning our lives for fruitfulness. And fruitfulness is looking more and more like Christ. That's the greatest good possible. And he prunes our life. So as we abide in Christ and we hold a profession of faith and we walk out the truth of the gospel message, we live under the reign of Christ. We submit to Jesus, the one in whom we do not physically see. But we believe He came and lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, defeated death, and rose again. Ascended to heaven where He is right now bodily. And He will come again one day for us. And He will come again in perfect justice and judgment. We submit to Jesus that we do not physically see. We walk by faith in the Lord. And what's this entail for our lives? Very much like a physical body that has been brought from death to life. Or our bodies that are today are alive. Everybody in the room is alive. This is a good thing. Right? That's a good thing. That would make this really uncomfortable. So we're alive, but that doesn't mean we're operating in the way of a healthy body, does it? Physically. In a physical sense. Now we're, we're living, but if we just go home and sit on the couch if we don't exercise or are disciplined to what we're taking into our minds and dwelling on, we're not going to be the way we were made to be and designed to be. We're not going to be fruitful in our lives. And in a similar way, the Lord has brought us to spiritual life. We've received this. We didn't earn it. We've received this. And we're called to make every effort to set our minds on the things above to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to grow in fruitfulness. It's not a binding, burdensome law, but it's freedom in the way we were called to live. Like a beautiful vine that's being groomed and trimmed back, that it would grow beautifully the way it was designed to do so. So we grow in our faith in Christ, and we supplement with this moral virtue, like Christ. Faith in Christ, supplementing with virtue. The New American translates this, moral excellence. The NIV, goodness and we saw back in verse 3 that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Moral excellence. Who is the most morally excellent person you know? Think about your life. Who's the most godly person that you know? And as you think about them, now you would probably answer, Jesus, right? That's an easy one. But if I said, well, what person physically, like, do you know physically in your life that you would say is the most godly, morally virtuous person you know? You would end up saying somebody that would probably paint a picture that most physically represented Christ, right? Morally virtuous, and, and ironically, they're usually the most humble people that you know. Because that person that's been following Christ for months and years and decades as their life has transformed in these virtues and being transformed, they look at themselves and they don't see themselves. They reflect the credit right away to God working in them. They reflect the credit to the, the grace of God, the Spirit of God transforming their lives. And you look and you say, yeah, but look at your life; it's amazing. But they can't help but see Christ in them because their transformation has not simply been pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Their transformation has been setting their minds on Christ who is above. And they can't help but give him the glory and humility, moral excellence. One opportunity that we have as a church family to do something that of virtue, of, of moral excellence, is, is we get to serve a, a great ministry in town, the Heartbeat Pregnancy Center. I know you've probably seen it in the bulletin. I know you read the bulletin just with joy and passion in your devotion time. <laughs> and the week-to-week email. I know both of those. You just cannot help but get enough of that. But you saw then, but as a reminder, just to bring it back to mind, next two weeks in the foyer, we're going to be collecting items. And as, 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 as young women find themselves possibly pregnant, they, they, many of them come to the Heartbeat Pregnancy Center. And they provide great services to them, but they are short on ultrasound bags. They want to gift these ladies, bless these ladies with the reality of the life in the womb. And likewise, if we ever find of women who are with child and scared, we want to embrace them in the life of our church family. As we do, we long and pray for opportunity to do. But for the next two weeks, we'll be collecting new items, generic onesies, baby socks, blankets, and, and baby lotions. And Jimmy Cooper will be out in the foyer to be able to take those the next two weeks. But well, let's blow them away. Let's do something virtuous and excellent and, and, and bless these young moms in our community. Moral excellence. It's, it's why, again, the most godly, virtuous people can't help but give credit to God for how he's blessed them in their life. What do we do with that? We supplement virtue with knowledge of Christ. We supplement, third, virtue with the knowledge of Christ. In Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs later tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear, and a righteous, and a right understanding and a clarity of who God is. Knowledge. Knowledge of God in two senses. Certainly knowledge according to the promises of God and the Word of God. But we grow in knowledge of God as we put our stock in God and His faithfulness and His Word. We gain knowledge of God as we live by the Word. And His Word proves true. Not that everything makes sense in our life, but He is a faithful witness. We grow in this experiential knowledge that comports to Scripture. And this builds our faith. A few weeks ago, I was moving a pretty heavy object in my home. Not showing off here, humble brag, but it was like a mattress. It was not that impressive. But anyway, I was carrying it, and I was lifting it up, and uh, my oldest boy runs under the mattress while I'm there. And Sarah's in the room watching this, and I'm like, No, what do you get out of there? I'm holding the mattress, trying to shoo him out. He just wants to be under it. And I'm thinking, Uriah, you can hurt yourself. Don't be under there. Why are you doing that? It's crazy. It's like when there's a moment of danger, he cannot help but get his way to it as quick as possible. And Sarah made an observation afterwards that I didn't even think of. I, I said, it's like he's not even scared. He's got, he's not, he, he, why, what is he doing? And she said, he's got no reason to be scared. He's young enough that I, I've not broken his trust yet. On my watch, he's not, in that sense, gotten hurt like that by me or from me. And so he's able, His experience with me, his knowledge of my word is is that I am trustworthy. And so we we gain in this way, we add knowledge to these things. Now, perhaps you look and and you would say, and, and I would say perhaps at first reading, but I know a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge of God's word, but they don't seem to have a lot of love for God or the way of God. Well, that's clearly not what Peter's referring to, is it? The knowledge that we have of God that we store up in our lives is like storing up dry wood. We're storing it up not to hoard it, but to burn it. And we're burning it regularly. That's what the Word of God is in our life. The Spirit takes the dry wood of the Word, burns it, and transforms us in ways we'll never even be aware of because we're so transformed and being transformed that our minds are shaping and changing, that we're protected from certain temptations as we're growing in Christlikeness. That's the love of God for us. Now, we don't always know. There can be a danger to that, though, That w- to go to a Bible study. We encourage you to get involved with a group. We've got small groups to be starting up soon, women's Bible study, uh, men's huddles are going on. So there's opportunities to get involved in the Word. But listen, it's, I- I've seen this too often. You can come. You can either come to a, 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 a church service, hear a sermon, or you can go to a Bible study and work through it and say, I didn't get anything from that because what you did is you went into it, we go into it thinking, I need to hear something, God, that addresses exactly point A of my life. This is my problem. Give me my solution. And what we're doing is in reality, we're kind of like the patient that goes to the doctor and has already WebMD'd their own symptoms and says, I need this medication. Now, the good doctor is not just going to give that medication, is he or she? The good doctor is going to listen and give them what they actually need. And that's what the Word of God does. He equips us for opportunities in which we may never know that we are going to need to burn that wood. Maybe for, like, I don't know, the third biggest snowstorm in Akadosh's history. You <laughs> don't know why you're storing it up, but you know the Lord has a purpose for it, and He's equipping us, and He's faithful and true and reminded, just as Pastor Stephen said at the beginning of the service, we're reminded in these rhythms of God, man, Christ's response, He's faithful. So let me live today in response to His faithfulness. We grow in a knowledge of Christ, and to this we supplement knowledge, with self-control. Self-control, not simply self-control in itself. Self-control and discipline are a great thing. Even our culture recognizes discipline is a noble thing. We see people that discipline their bodies, that discipline their diets, that discipline their reading habits. They're disciplined and that's admirable. And even Paul tells Timothy that, hey, discipline is of worth, but godliness is, is of greater worth. In all things, for it's an eternal value to grow in Christ's likeness and godliness. That's why it's not simply self-control, but it's self-control in our aim toward Christ. Self-control in our aim toward Christ. We're gearing our eyes and our attentiveness to the Lord. Self-control in our aim toward Christ. That's what when we talk about membership in our our congregation. We have a membership class today at 2 o'clock. There's another opportunity next month, two Sunday morning times at 9 o'clock. But what you're saying in the context, what, what, what believers are saying when they commit themselves together in a congregational setting, is they're saying, I'm committing myself to have my aim on Christ. And because I love you and care for you, I want to help you have your aim on Christ in this season of your life as well. And, and I'm saying, I want you to have authority in my life to help make sure I am attentive in my aim toward Christ as well discipline in our aim toward Christ. That's God's grace in our life. So we're training ourselves in godliness. We're training ourselves in making disciples. Supplement self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness. This is steadfastness in following Christ. So our aim is set on Christ. We're disciplined to set our aim on Christ. And then we're going that same direction. Slowly, one step at a time. Two steps forward, one step back. But we're steadfast in that direction. Following Christ. Steadfastness. Perseverance. What does this look like in our life? Looks like in John chapter 6. Remember in John chapter 6 when thousands of people were coming to Jesus. They've seen his miracles that he did. They're undeniable. And they look and they they want to take him and make them their Christ. They have a plan for his life. And Jesus tells them, unless you eat of my flesh or drink of my blood, you have no part in this. In me and the kingdom of God. And the masses leave. Thousands and thousands of people are leaving. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter, voicing the heart of the disciples, tells Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's steadfastness. Steadfastness presumes what? That following Christ will not always be easy. Steadfastness presumes in it that we too will get sick. Loved ones will will die. Life will not happen the way that we anticipate to happen in our following Christ, as we saw in 1 Peter, may be the very reason that many face relational hardships. But we're steadfast. Because we trust the word of the God that we cannot see over the things and the people that we can see. And he's faithful. F- he's, he's faithful. He preserves us. For the work of His Spirit has been given as a guarantee of the inheritance we have in Christ. And so we persevere in Christ's likeness. And the joy that a believer has in fruitfulness. Not in easy seasons, but in, in, in joyful seasons and simple seasons and healthy seasons and all the things fruitfulness, Lord. Help me to be fruitful in this season. What a beautiful, simple prayer that we can pray. What a beautiful prayer, parents and grandparents, as you think through, how do I help train up the next generation? Pray that they would become fruitful. Our parents and grandparents have plans for their kids' lives and grandkids' lives. But how much do we pray in and ask God, God, but what do you want for my child this year? How do you want to grow them? You want to grow their jump shot you want to grow their GPA? You know he wants them to grow in godliness. So God, as a parent, how do I model this faithfully? How do I walk with them in this charge that you've given me, to grow them in Christ-likeness. What a prayer. What an opportunity God has given us as a congregation to do exactly that. And we add in these things godliness in, in private and public as we represent Christ. We supplement our self-control and steadfastness to godliness. Now our church is marked by dozens, or well over a hundred people who had a season of stumbling in their walk after the Lord. They heard the gospel, perhaps, maybe they moved or had a change in season or change in habit. They just got out of the comfort of being with the fellowship of God, with the people of God. Perhaps they fell into the mud of sin in their life, but the Spirit of God who indwells them did not leave them there. Though they laid there, or perhaps, or, or wallowed in it for weeks, or months, or even some years. The Lord is faithful. Our congregation, many of the people that are sang around you this morning, many of the people that are part of our church and serve and care, these are exactly who we are. A steadfast people who aim for godliness. As God's not done with us, that we spent a season in unfruitfulness, but we look to the Lord for fruitfulness and ask him to bear fruit in our lives and among us godliness then in private and public as we represent christ we pray for a consistency a consistency full confession one of my biggest fears in being called into vocational ministry is that my kids would grow up and not want to be a part of a local church they would despise it one of the consistent components that i found and also in my season of student ministry and i've asked Dozens, literally dozens and dozens, maybe over a hundred different pastors that were much further along in the ministry. How did you grow your kids to love the Lord and at least love the church? To not be embittered. And some of those men that I've spoken to had regrets, and others then said, this is what we did. It was God's grace, but here's things we tried to do. And you know what most of their answers most consistently had? I tried to be the same man that I was at church as I was at home which means not perfect, but I would confess my sin. Not just confess it to them when I'd sinned against my child, but confess it because I'm submitting to Christ. That the children then in this way, as they grow, see their parents submitting to a Jesus that they cannot see, that they truly believe died for them. And it remodels their life. It takes priority over their schedule. It takes priority over their spending. That Jesus... His rule impacts their life. It impacts how they do their time. It impacts why they try to get to know their neighbors. It impacts how they serve and use their giftings. It impacts all of their life. This becomes a constant witness. It doesn't mean that guarantee that the child will grow to love Christ or give their lives to Christ. What it does mean is they have a clearer picture of the Christ that they deny and are choosing to walk away from. And by God's grace, perhaps when they get old, they will return from the way in which they were taught. The way a child should go. Amen? That's our heart for us. And I have no doubt that many of you college students that gather with us are part of that testimony. Perhaps you spent a season in wandering away from the Lord. And the Lord is bringing you back in this way. Or perhaps some coming to grace for the first time. Give your life to Christ. That's your purpose. Be and make disciples. Rest in the goodness of our God. Godliness in private as well as public. And then seventh and eighth are really yoked together. Brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. We have brotherly affection because of Christ. The New King James translates this brotherly kindness. The NIV mutual affection. This is the one anothering that we talk about. The one anothering of word worship service family. Brotherly kindness toward one another. Now Today is, of course, the day before Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a man who was willing to give his very life, leading to see that our nation's laws would reflect the reality of biblical and divine truths that God has made us equal. Race and ethnicity do not divide us. We are one under the Lord and the law should represent that reality. And many of his prayers are, have been documented in manuscript. You can, you can find them. I spent some time this week reading many of them. And a consistent theme in them uh, represents one prayer that I found in 1953 that he prayed in Atlanta. Listen to what he said as we think about this virtue of brotherly affection. He prayed, when fear and doubt are mounting high, God, would you give us power of endurance, a brotherhood that transcends race or color. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. That's right, brotherly affection. Now, our culture has a lot of ways to be able to form affection for each other. Sports teams, hobbies, jobs, careers of service and sacrifice, they bond us together. Even neighborhoods and dorm rooms and things like that can create some sense, sororities and fraternities, some sense of togetherness, brotherhood and sisterhood. But listen. Even biological family cannot create the same bond that is the believers in Christ of brotherly and sisterly affection. For we have been brought to newness of life through the blood of Christ. True family, eternal family, by the grace of our God. Brotherly affection, amen? And what do we supplement this brotherly affection with? Number eight, love. Love. Love, to act as Christ toward one another. That is love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us of these things. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why is that the greatest of these? Well, because faith is going to have a time when we don't need faith. You realize when we die and our soul goes to be with the Lord, we don't need faith. We'll see them, right? We've the, we're in the new heavens and new earth and our glorified resurrected bodies and with them here forever. What will we be doing? We won't need faith in that way. And we won't need hope because all the promises of God in Scripture that we cling to will be fully realized. But love, the way we're called to care for one another, by serving each other and pointing each other to Christ, that's eternal. We'll eternally be modeling perfectly Christ-like love as we sit under the reign of Christ forever in entirety in every sense of what that means. Aren't these worth setting our minds on? Aren't these worth making every effort to run in these things? For this reason, we saw these things. Now, let's look at the final verses. I'm going to read for you a portion of Scripture in John chapter 9. If you're in your Pewback Bible, you're welcome to follow along on page 895. Page 895. Now, as you flip there, I want to read verse 9 of this text of 2 Peter. And you'll see exactly why we're going to read the account of John chapter 9 in a moment. But verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 1, For whoever lacks these qualities, they choose not to make every effort. (laughs) Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So people in the congregation, people in the congregation of God, they've been forgiven They've been cleansed from their sins, and yet they choose not to nurture these things. They they settle for fruitless lives. These eight virtues make no part of a priority in their lives. And he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Meaning, they can see, but they're choosing to live as though they cannot see. In John chapter 9, let's read this account. And after the account, I want to make one tweak and see how you feel. God, would you make us fruitful? Help us to make every effort, Lord. John chapter 9. This is right after, as you remember, Jesus being chased out of the temple. They picked up stones to try to kill him. But he leaves. Now listen to this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He must work the works of him who sent me. Or we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now the neighbors and those who... Had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, Is this not the man who sat and begged?" And some said, It is he. Others said, No, 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 but, but but, he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, well, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the, the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Now some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Asked him, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I want you to imagine this story. That back up in verse 7. It's the same. Jesus walks along with his disciples, sees the man, asks the question, is this man born blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Jesus gives the same statement about being the light of the world and doing the works that the Father has given him to work. Jesus spits on the ground, takes the mud, places it on the man's eyes, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. He goes and he washes and the man can see. And then he comes back to the spot where he was a beggar for decades. And he sits back down on the ground on his mat. And he pretends to be blind and begs for the rest of his life. How would you feel about that man? What a tragedy! be able to physically see and yet to feign and pretend to be blind to go back to a fruitless life when there's so much to see and do and how God had made him and healed him and commissioned him Peter says that's as it is of the believers who've been forgiven who know Christ and worship Christ yet who choose in their life Not to make every effort to practice these virtues, to not live for fruitfulness. The Lord, in this way, commissions us to be and to go and make followers of Jesus, and to set our minds on Him for whatever season that we find ourselves in. That's the glory that God has for us. That's the beautiful, fruitful life that God has given us. Now, with these things said, give yourself a little bit of grace, right? This is a practice. He says, practice these things. That's a practice. Part of the joy that we have in life is that we don't go through solo, but we go through these things together as a congregation of the Lord. That's one of the greatest gifts that we can give to each other. When we're down in shame or when we're going back to pretending that we cannot see, to lovingly pursue one another and lift our eyes back of who we truly are by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen. So let us make every effort for fruitful living, for by His divine power, we have that ability to walk after Christ. Amen? Amen. In our next steps, we find together four key applications in addition to however the Spirit has used this word to shape your life and shape your heart this morning. So we talk about God, man, Christ, in response. There's four simple applications that you see before you. Number one is a question, a reflective question. How might the Spirit of God be specifically pruning like a vine, like a rose bush? How might the Lord be pruning your life and your budget and your calendar and your relationships and your goals in life? How has the Lord been pruning you for fruitfulness? Because the Lord loves us and cares for us and longs for us to be fruitful. Sometimes He brings us certainly into situations that make us uncomfortable is how often how the Lord works in our lives. And I think there's a clear connection here of these eight virtues connected to 1 Peter when he speaks about faithfulness in Christ in the little whiles. I believe as we grow in likeness in these eight virtues, we are more likely to be faithful, to hold fast to the confession of faith that we have when our faith begins to cost us more and more, relationally, personally, and communally. And so, would you take a moment to be, just think, Lord, how have you been pruning my life? And thank you. Thank the Lord for pruning your life. And set your mind on Christ in those things. Number two, pray daily this week, by name for for two believers. Perhaps you know two believers that are choosing to live a life of a beggar. They know the gospel message. They've made a profession of faith, and yet their life, if you look, you'd say, I don't know how much they're really actually following Christ. They seem to be neglecting the fellowship of the saints. They don't seem to be committed in this sense to making disciples of Christ. Would you pray to the Lord personally this week, daily? Write their name somewhere. Put it in your phone as a a calendar alert that will pop up. And pray for them. That they would aim to set their minds on Christ above. That they would aim for fruitful living, living in this. That the Lord would give you a conviction and wisdom and boldness to come alongside that person and point them to Christ that you would love them in that way. What a beautiful opportunity the Lord has given us in this way. Third, as a church, and again, I think it's part of the reason he gives these eight virtues with the supplementary format and and how the language works out for us. It's It's a great opportunity to memorize these things. He told us for this reason to make every effort, to set our mind on these things. So let's take a challenge together. Let's work to memorize this together. Now, if you've looked ahead at your bulletin or you look at the words behind me on the screen, you probably think I'm crazy. So your goal is not to remember, your goal is not to remember that, okay? But here it is. We want to hide God's word in our mind, asking the spirit of God to apply it out, to burn it out through our lives as wood into action. And so let's work to commit this together. If you have a roommate, work to commit this to memory with them this week. Work as much as you can in it. If you have anybody in your home, work if you can to memorize this with them. If you're in your home by yourself, if you're a single person, uh, Ask a friend to try to memorize it with you, and I'm going to give you here a a technique that my evangelism professor back in seminary taught me, and it is incredibly effective. I would say at that point, I'm I'm a person that cannot memorize things. Anybody in here that way? Raise your hand if you're one of those people you can't commit. So watch this. You're one of those people that can't commit to memorize something, or you think you can't, but you're bold enough to raise your hand in a room filled with other people. That's wild, so you should be successful at this. So here's how this works. It's very simple. It's simple enough it worked for me. And here's what it looks like. Just take one verse at a time. One verse at a time. And here's what you do you read that verse seven times. Read it at different paces. Read it once quickly. Read it once slowly. Read it once in a deep voice. Read it once in a high pitched voice. I'm not going to do my high pitched voice for you. I know my staff right now is wanting me to try, I'm, I'm, I got no vocal range. It's true. Okay, yeah. So, so, ah, that's about as high as I can get, okay? So as you do that seven times, these are just the first letter of every word in that verse, presuming I have recorded them correctly. It's just the first letter. That's it. So once you've said it seven times, look just at that verse of those letters and look at those letters and say it again, and you won't believe how well your mind will be able to pick it up. And if you get stuck and you can't say it, go back and read it one more time. And then do those letters until you can say it just by looking at the letters three times. So seven times, then three times, and then stop looking at it and say it. And if you can't get it all the way, look back at the letters. Don't look back at the verse, look back at the letters. And in about a 10-15 minute time period, you'll memorize that verse. Now you need to review it at night before you go to bed. Just have the letters beside it on a card, look at it again, and, and, and just build on it Then the next night do the next one, and work through this together. And we pray, God, would you hide this in our hearts, apply it out in our lives, help us to make every effort in these areas. And and then finally, baptism in this way is a beautiful and fruitful next step in which Jesus commands his disciples to participate. It's a beautiful next step. In a moment, we're going to uh, see Ron Braswell with his brother Gary is going to baptize him in just a moment. martin is going to read his testimony for us but next week if you've not been baptized there'll be a baptism class uh, jonathan mitchell dr jonathan mitchell one of our elders will be leading that class at ten forty-five next week baptism is not something we know that saves us but baptism is something we as believers ought to do in obedience to christ as he's commissioned us to go and to make disciples baptizing them and teaching them these things and what the one coming and, and to be baptized is saying is that they have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ. That they've been united with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. And just as Jesus has defeated death, their, their sin has been, was put on Christ. And Jesus has paid their debt. They've been buried and resurrected with Christ. Just as Jesus defeated the grave, they too know that one day he will raise them from the grave and they will be with him forever. That is the beauty of what we see depicted in the context of baptism.